From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. Orcs are roaming freely across our lands, unchecked, unchallenged, killing at will. Orcs bearing the white hand of Saruman. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Burning of the Westfold, where we are introduced to the Kingdom of Rohan, currently operating under the shadow of Saruman. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. And just a reminder, we have new stretch goals over at patreon.com slash bomb. If we hit 100 patrons over there, we will unlock all the extra bonus episodes for both The Two Towers and Return of the King. Let's go back, back to the beginning. So we've heard from the elves in painful detail. But what of the men? Well, the men, much like the elves, were created by Eru Iluvatar. And much like the elves, they awoke in the Far East, but this time in a land called Hildorian. When the Maiar Aryan began to move the sun through the great firmament for the first time, the men followed its siren song, and after centuries of wandering, they came to the land of Beleriand, the far west of Middle-earth. There is some evidence to suggest that after they awoke and arrived in Beleriand, the men were seduced and corrupted by Morgoth. Though some later repented and fled Morgoth's grasp, others did not. However, this sounds like Noldorian propaganda to me, so I'm calling it bullshit and ignoring it. Fuck the elves. Anyways, the men, loved best by Eru Iluvatar, were granted something called the Gift of Men. This is often shorthanded to mere mortality, but actually the Gift of Men is a far more expansive thing than just the ability to die, and it encompasses freedom from the predestination logic of Arda. For me, as someone not religious and not particularly versed in Christian modes of thought, it's really hard for me to grapple with what that means, and even harder to explain it. So we're gonna stick a pin in that discussion and maybe come back to it later. Maybe. In the first age, three houses of men, known as the Edine, teamed up with the elves to fight Morgoth. These three houses were Beor, Halith, and Hador, ranked there in order of importance. Some men never crossed west of the Misty Mountains, and others still never joined the fight against Morgoth. And these are broadly known as the Easterlings in the Higher Dream, though there are some other groups in Third Age Middle-earth that were part of that front. The three houses of the Edine later crossed the Sundering Seas to the Isle of Numenor, and while that's a fascinating conversation, it's one we're going to have in a few weeks. Instead, today we're going to focus on the ones who didn't cross the sea, and instead backtracked into Middle-earth. These men, who intermingled with the men who kept their neutrality in the war against Morgoth, came to be known as the Northmen which includes the men of Greenwood, from whence Legolas hails, the men of Dale and Esgroth, who are the men we see in The Hobbit, the skin changers we see in The Hobbit called Bjornings, and, of course, the Eotheod. Now, the Eotheod are interesting. 
plain dwellers who were particularly gifted as horse breeders and as early cavalrymen, the Eothead flourished in the vales of Anduin on northern Mirkwood in the start of the Third Age. There's some interesting military and conquest history here with a group known as the Wayne Riders, who were Easterlings who managed to pass as far west into Middle-earth as the borders of Lothlorien. But it's a bit opaque and not super relevant to what we're going to be talking about, so suffice it to say that the Aotheod were well acquainted with the indignity of colonized and occupied, and were, by and large, not keen on repeating the experience. For many years, the Aotheod eked out a life as a nomadic pastoral people. Occasionally, they helped the Gondorim out, including in their own war against the Wayne Riders, during which time Ondaher, king of Gondor, perished at the disaster of Moranin along with his eldest son, Artemir. His second son, Faramir, who refused to stay in Minas Tirith while the other men rode out to war, perished alongside some men of the Aotheod. The sole remaining child of Ondaher, a daughter named Firiel, wed the chieftain of the northern Dunedain, a man named Arvedwi, and the rest, they say, is history. For more on that, check out episode 7, A Knife in the Dark, where I detail a bit more of the history of the North. So, 600 years pass, and the Eotheod have largely gone back to minding their own business. But the borders of Gondor are once again being harried by the, uh, hairy dream? (laughs) (laughs) The steward Kyrian, desperate for support during an already dire time in Gondor's history, sent out a call for aid to all the men of Middle-earth. Only the Aotheod answered the call, and, led by Aerol the Young, at the southernmost border of Athelion, the Aotheod and the Gondorim banded together to push back the Herodrim incursions. In return for their valor at the crossings of Poros, the steward Kyrian gifted the depopulated westernmost region of Gondor to the Aotheod, a land named Kilinarthron. The Aotheod renamed themselves the Aerolingus, or Sons of Aerol, while the Gondorim named them the Rohirrim, literally, the horse lords. Earl and Carrion swore an oath of allegiance known as both the Oath of Aearl or the Oath of Carrion, depending on which country you're in, and for hundreds of years thereafter, Rohan was Gondor's most steadfast ally. And that is where we'll leave it for now. It's time, it's time, it's Rohan time. And, of course, as is good and right by the fortunes of Rohan, we are introduced to one of the most significant kingdoms of men by watching its future die before our very eyes. Or, almost, the actual death happens off-screen in a scene adapted from the unfinished tales. Nonetheless, we watch a rider carrying a near-lifeless body traverse the rough, hilly terrain of Rohan to enter the wood-walled cities of Edoras. Enter Eowyn. Eowyn, White Lady of Rohan, a lady high and valiant, more beautiful than can be captured by the words of the elven tongue. Or, in other words, My wife! She throws herself at Theodred's bedside, though he is not long for this world, sickly and pale, wounds oozing with blood. Beside her, her brother Eomer does his best brooding man impression. Clearly, he's got a lot of emotions, but isn't going to speak any of them into the world. Okay, dude, that's healthy. Whatever cut to an overhead shot of a darkened hall, and this is some really brilliant theatrical lighting. 
It's not exactly likely that some well-placed skylights would have produced this softly glowing lighting setup in reality, but holy shit does it work so well. Also note the horse carving that's in this, initially in the center of the frame. Really, no detail was too small for the creation of this set. Your son is badly wounded, my lord. He was ambushed by orcs. Hail, Theoden King. Tired, bedraggled. More pallid and dead-looking than his literally dying son. Unresponsive as Aomer reminds him that if the borders of Rohan are not properly defended, Saruman will take the country by force. That is a lie. Saruman the White has ever been our friend and ally. Snape-like, snake-like, dripping with malevolence, Grima Wormtongue makes his triumphant debut in the narrative bringing with him Brad Dorif, the second in the series trio of absolutely impeccable villain actors. Theoden is clearly non-compass mentis, as he can do little more than murmur incoherently in response to the argument bearing out before him. We love a good leader, don't we folks? Amor tosses down an orcish helmet bearing the white hand of Saruman, and I just want you all to listen to this awesome sound work. Seriously, no detail left untouched. Anyways, Grima takes this time to, uh, check out Eowyn, which, while sort of defensible because who wouldn't be absolutely nauseatingly in love with her, doesn't play quite so well when you look and act like Ted Bundy going through a fallout boy phase. <laughs> Why do you lay these troubles on an already troubled mind? Oh, wow. Uh, how did we get audio from my morning meetings at work in here? Make sure you pause the film just after this line delivery, though, because the raven-like shot of Grima here is phenomenal. A backwards look over his shoulder like a Hollywood starlet, coupled with the dark greasy wig, the black costuming, and the dark, dark set, makes his sickly pale skin and brilliantly blue eyes stick out. It's nothing but sharp angles in a sense that maybe this man standing before us isn't completely human? But more on that later. Grima accuses Aomer of warmongering, which is an insanely funny accusation given that the Rohir culture is literally singularly based on a fetishization of war and warriors. But Aomer is made no less angry for that fact. Like a good schoolyard bully, he grabs Grima by the collar and slams him up against a pillar. What was the promised price, Grima? Obviously a horrifying scene, and the knowledge that Aowen is being offered up as a spoil of war to anyone at all is really grim but I want to appreciate here the look in Grima's eyes. Brilliant acting off of Dorif, who, despite the fucking bleak context of the scene, looks at Eowyn as if he might actually love her? As if he might have an interior life beyond being a cartoonish villain? Magical acting, really. Then comes a bit of blocking in choreography that I'm pretty sure was copied step for step in Game of Thrones. Grima looks left and right, and soon the guards are on Aomer, pulling him off, illustrating that, well, and please note how much it pains me to do this. <laughs> power is power. You see much, Aomer, son of Aomun, says Grima, in a line that is painfully funny given that in the book, Aomer literally does not even register that his sisters may be having a bad time. But I digress. The guards sock Aomer in the stomach in a little crowd control measure borrowed from the Metropolitan Police, and Grima proclaims Aomer's banishment.
in today's set of scenes, we met Eomer, Eowyn, and Theoden King, but we are going to go super light on all three for now, as our next Two Towers episode will be focused entirely on Theoden and Eomer. And a bit later down the line, we are going to bundle Eowyn with Faramir, who, not unlike J.R.R. himself, for that character deep dive. Way. At least in the Two Towers, we don't have a lot of eyes on these three characters outside of their presence with other main characters, such as Aragorn or Gandalf. So a lot of these early scenes are created for the film to set up later ones. We assume you know who all these folks are, but some basic information we can kill off right now. Eomer is the, is the nephew of King Theoden on his mother's side and the third Marshal of the Mark. For the film series, he is essentially head general cavalryman of the Rohirrim and will become the next king of Rohan following the death of Theoden and the War of the Ring. And he's, of course, played by the prolific Karl Urban. More on him next time. Theoden begins the Two Towers as king, though his mind is overthrown by Saruman with an assist from Grima Wormtongue. Theoden will have some of the trilogy's best moments, especially at the end of this film and again when, when the Rohirrim ride for Minas Tirith. Theoden is played by Bernard Hill, who again, we'll talk about more next week. Eowyn, shield maiden of Rohan, is Eomer's younger sister and niece to Theoden King. I'm literally afraid of saying anything else unless <laughs> Emily would bite my head off. <laughs> Kidding, love you. Eowyn is played by Miranda Otto. And also, Meduseld. We get a couple looks inside a Meduseld, the Golden Hall, in this episode, but its construction and all that will be better discussed in our race history section when we do Theoden and Aramir next time, and we, I'm sure we can get more into it when the three hunters and Gandalf arrive, as we get a lot better look at the set and how it positions atop Edoras. So I feel like since we are now starting the kind of bulk of the two towers, I have to get, and sorry to Frodo and Sam, but uh, you guys don't matter to me. <laughs> um, but the, so we're into the, like the, the, the real kind of meaty plot of the two towers. So I have to get my disclaimer here, which is that um, the movie Rohan plot and the movie kingdom of Rohan slash the Rittermark is, is basically so functionally and thematically different from the book Rohan and Rohirric characters that I kind of can't treat them the same way in my head. Like I'm super not sympathetic to the Rohirrim in the book. Um, I, I really kind of think they're all like uh, jackasses and and suck uh, and should all be like put to the wall for what they do to Eowyn. Um, but that really doesn't carry over at all <laughs> into the film. Um, and, you know, there are kind of these small like little character moments that, that change, um, so much about what movie Rohan is. Uh, and when we get to those, I'll kind of point them out. But like when I get angsty about Rohan um, throughout <laughs> this series of, of episodes, um, I just want to make it clear that for the most part, I'm actually mad about like the book uh, Rohirrim and the movie Rohirrim are largely sort of free of, of guilt, free of sin <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> Someone we can talk about is Theodrid. Oh, Theodred, we hardly knew he. He shows up in this film mostly dead, and in a few quick scenes, he'll be all dead. Hopefully, Paris House Drew got a good paycheck for barely muttering a few lines and laying down quite a bit. In these scenes, we start with Eomer already riding back to Edoras with the dying Theodred in tow. The extended edition offers a little more coverage of Eomer finding his cousin and best friend. One thing I flagged here on Theodred's deathbed is Carl Urban's look of despair, 
and Miranda Otto's closed eyes and look of sadness when she sees Theodred's wound, which are both great bits of physical or face acting without any dialogue exchanged. I also just want to point out that this has like good sibling vibes. Um, I just watched the movie Doom really recently, um, and it's got Carl Urban and Rosamund Pike, of all people, playing twins in it. And it's the most fucking incesty vibe I've ever watched. Like at points, I was like, there's no way they're actually siblings. Like the, the two or three lines that they make the start about them being twins has to be a joke. There's no way. Um, but no, no, that chemistry was just like that and they ran with it. So it's nice to see that that is not like a Carl Urban TM specialty. <laughs> um, and it's nice to see the sibling relationship played out in a normal way. <laughs> Theodred Prince was second marshal of Rohan, command in the West, and heir to his father Theoden's throne until his untimely death. He's supposed to be 41 in the text, though he's late 20s, early 30s here, uh, probably to be more in line with Carl Urban's actual age. Theodred, the name, is taken from Anglo-Saxon words, I don't know how to pronounce that letter. Piad. Theod, Theod. That's the thorn. The thorn? Okay. Yeah, so Theod. Had fucking white people. Um, (laughs) But it it means folk, people, or nation. And you want to just say that word that means council? Oh, that's also red. Red. Um, So Theo, red. Or Theod, red. Love it. Uh, Yeah, this is uh, Anglo-Saxon lettering is interesting. And actually, like, sort of pre-modern English had a lot more letters than it used to. We, we get into this discussion a lot here in Scotland because there are a couple letters that um, still exist in the Scots alphabet that have kind of been erased because like, you know, we don't have Scots uh, uh, or Gaelic really uh, keyboards. So um, the lettering that is kind of around on like the, you know, British English QWERTY keyboard kind of de- mm-hmm. decides what all uh, the Latinate uh, letter systems will look like. Anyway, sorry, that is a total tangent, but it's interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, so there's a lot of like heritable naming in Rohan and Gondor. So uh, you'll see that here, like especially clearly with the, the Rohirrim. Um, so Theodred's father is Theoden, and his sister was Theodwin, who married Eomund and bore him Eomer and Eowyn. And then there's Theoden and Theodwin's father, Thengel, whose father was Fengel, which is a name quite literally lifted from Beowulf, which means prince. Uh, so there's a lot of this all over the place, and it's actually quite easy to sort of trace lineages and families, um, not just in the the sort of Rohan plots and, and the Lord of the Ring, but in lots of Anglo-Saxon um, inspired or directly Anglo-Saxon writing uh, just through names. Uh, so that's kind of an easy way to to keep these people, this cast of characters in line. So that's actually a place where I got a question for you, because to no surprise, uh, George Martin does very much the same thing in mm. A Song of Ice and Fire with the Targaryens or the Starks. It's Edric and Eddard. And, um, yeah. um, is that anything based on like historical naming or any kind of medieval fantasy naming? Like, Does it have an origin or did like Tolkien do that and then George is aping Tolkien or do, do they have like some common ancestry there? Yeah, so so um, there are a lot of naming systems that do uh, like patronomic or matronomic names. Uh, like the one that I'm sort of most familiar with, uh, just because of where I grew up is is Arabic. Like uh, lots of uh, countries that speak Arabic as like a primary language um, have uh, like patronomic uh, naming. Uh, so you'll have like. Uh, 
every time I do this, I think of war criminals first. This is like I did Hitler and Boromir. I got Pol Pot and at some point, God damn it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the fucking kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but, but that's, a, that's pretty much it. Like you'll get like, um, Ibn Saud, um, or Al Saud. Uh, and that means like the son of, um, or, uh, like of the family of that Ibn and that Al Al, uh, does that. Um, you get it a lot in like French, um, and well, most romance languages actually, um, the Romans, the the ancient Romans, had a, a fucking wild uh, patronomic system. I was reading about this really recently, actually, where like you would have like, so say you're like Emperor Sixtus, right? Um, and you are Sixtus, and then your kid would be like Sixtus. Oh no, sorry, Sixtus is actually one of the numerical ones. Anyways, so you're like you're like Augustus, right? And then you have a kid that's like Augustus. Uh, like Prima and then Augustus like duo and then Augustina Prima and then Augustina duo and you're like naming your kids after yourself and then literally just assigning them numbers so it would be like if I had kids and I was like okay Emily one Emily two weird weird stuff uh, I guess it worked for them but yeah but so then you get into sort of like medieval English uh, naming structures and you've got well actually look at my last name my last name is Robinson uh, which quite literally means son of Robin uh, and that's a, that's a sort of patronomic way of, of handling that. Um, so it's, it's kind of all over history. Um, certainly uh, the kind of Celtic, uh, old English, old British mythology that both Tolkien and uh, George R. R. Martin would have been drawing from. Um, I think there's also sort of an element of um, not to overly credit Tolkien with anything because there's obviously a huge uh, historical precedent for it. But I think like bringing in that sort of uh, old English British tradition into the realm of fantasy as a genre, like is definitely sort of, uh, a, a his doing, um, and you know, not to, I'm sure George R. R. Martin did do loads of independent research to, to sort of build up his, his world. But like, I suspect that that is probably like this kind of dual prong thing of like, yes, it is a historical thing, but he probably only got to that historical thing because Tolkien did it first, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And I kind of realized how stupid that question was after because <laughs> my entire family starts with M names. Like um, our last name starts with M. And then like my sister, my parents, my aunt, uncle, my cousins, we, we're all MMs. Uh, nice. So it, I think it's just something that we do. And my sister, her husband, uh, his name starts with an A and thus they've named all their kids with A names. So oh, um, that's cute. So I, so I think it's a thing that is just kind of broadly accepted. I'm sure, you know, Tolkien wasn't looking at Hindu naming conventions. <laughs> or anything, but it might just be a thing a lot of people do anyways. And yeah. going back to older times, you can probably see some value in that when we didn't have record keeping the way we do now. Uh, probably probably helps keep things simplified. Yep. So Rohan in the Two Towers film is a kingdom on the brink of doom. Thanks to Sauron, orcs are running freely across their lands and causing trouble, to say the least. Their king is held captive by some sorcery. And with Theodred's death, the crown prince has died. Yeah, so there's some really interesting politics in this as well. And this is kind of something I'm going to give a slightly better intro to, uh, I think, next week. Um, and then we'll keep coming back to time and time and time again. Um, and I don't necessarily think Peter Jackson and co. were like super cognizant of this when they were making the films. Um, but the death of Theodred and the ending of the second line of the House of Aeryl is actually meant to be like a point of critique for Theoden as a king. Um, and I, I feel like I necessarily have to like preface this with, I'm not saying I agree with everything that I'm about to say. I'm saying that this is like definitely the line of sort of monarchical thought that Tolkien was using when he was writing this stuff out. But, um, 
monarchs are kind of meant to ensure, well, not kind of, monarchs are meant to ensure the safety of their realms. Um, and a really key way of doing that is to ensure a stable transition of power. So having your only heir die is a huge fucking problem. Um, first, it's a problem that you've only got one heir, you're meant to do an heir and a spare. Um, but second, letting him die because you've been playing it fast and loose with your borders is a huge own goal. Um, and so this doesn't really get played up uh, at all, or are really played at all, acknowledged at all in the films, but Theoden kind of fails time and time and time again with all of his basic functions as a king, and opening the Rohan plot with the death of Theodred is a really clear way of showing that. Coupled with the attacks on the West Fold, things are pretty bleak for our horse girls, which is why Gandalf kind of prioritizes them in upcoming scenes. Uh, I disagree with this. Um, Or no, there's nothing really in there for me to disagree with. But I think the reason that Gandalf uh, prioritizes them is not out of some like uh, sort of charitable, benevolent desire to help out the guys who are like especially fucked over right now. And I think that Gandalf being kind of a user and manipulator recognizes that Rohan is at a point of weakness um, and this is sort of getting into the weeds a bit, but Thengel, who was Theoden's father, and then Fengal, who was Thengel's father, both had a reputation of kind of not being uh, particularly outward looking. They were like very sort of protective, but also very prideful, uh, especially about their position vis-a-vis Gondor. Um, and as I talked about at, at the top, like Gondor uh, basically gave Rohan its existence as a kingdom. Uh, and so most of its like political legitimacy is tied to not the kings of Gondor, but the stewards of Gondor. So that's that's sort of a destabilizing power. Um, but anyways, Thengel and Fengal were not particularly keen on on being involved or hanging out with um with Gondor, really. Uh, Thengel more so than Fengal because he married a woman of Gondor and lived in Gondor for some time. Um, but anyways, Rohan was kind of closed off to to the rest of the world during those two previous reigns and for much of Theoden's reign. Um, and so having Theoden kind of knocked out of play a bit, uh, weaker than he's ever been before, um, means that Gandalf can come in and essentially take over or have Aragorn take over this massive cavalry. Um, and a cavalry is important for a whole wide variety of reasons. Like it is one of the most significant sort of military innovations. Um, but it's especially significant when you're trying to cover the distance, this thousands of miles of distance between here and Mordor in a short amount of time without exhausting your troops. Um, and it helps for something like, uh, uh, uh the, these kind of charges on the more technologically advanced army of, uh, Saruman in the West and Sauron in the East. Um, and so I think Gandalf shows up here, uh, not just because it's kind of a pit stop on the way and he wants to get like his Wawa sandwich or whatever. Um, but also because he sees that this is a, a kingdom that can kind of be, uh, bent to his will. Um, and so is really looking at the fact that Theoden is weak and wanting to kind of push that weakness just far enough that he can make sure that Theoden is in debt to him and then kind of, you know, make of Theoden's power base (laughs) what he will, really. Okay, all that makes sense. And I'll admit, I kind of just threw this in the outline when I was firing (laughs) off brain empty thoughts. So I've been thinking about since you said, oh, really? Uh, So I've kind of been thinking about what what I was trying to get at here. And I do think I, I'm thinking of it more as a military move um, as opposed to a I love Rohan and its people kind of move. Yeah. Um, I think he recognizes both the threat that Sauron is. Like, I assume of all the beings in Middle-earth, Gandalf probably understands what Sauron is better than most. And maybe that's yeah. wrong, but um, they're definitely played as a pair in these films. 
And I, so I mostly think it's like if Rohan falls, then Gondor is extremely fucked, um, yeah. as opposed to just being mostly fucked right now. And I think that's kind of where it's like, okay, um, and, and I'm kind of speaking from how the movies depicted is like, okay, you three hunters, you, you know that Mary and Pippin are safe. I got like something a little more important for you to work on because the Mary Pippin Treebeard stuff, that'll sort itself out, yeah. um, kind of on its own. So it's like, we got to focus on this. Um, I do think it is a little bit of training wheels for Aragorn, like you say, um, like, Hey, can you handle this? Like, this is almost like building him up to be what we see in return of the King is like, can you help? Can you help other people? He's like, to lead, you must learn how to follow. That's actually a line that um, the Lord Commander tells Jon Snow in A Game <laughs> of Thrones, like the book. And Jon Snow is very much based on Aragorn. And he's a ranger from the north and takes the black and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so I do think there is something there, at least in the film as it's told. And it almost seems like Theoden and Gandalf are better friends in the film version. Um, yep. Once uh, Saruman's ensorcelment is broken, um, it seems like Theoden is legitimately happy to be around Gandalf. And he's a little more chafed when it's just Aragorn and not his friendly white wizard with him. Yeah, this is actually so we'll, we'll definitely get into this more later. But like, I think there's a sort of uh, a, a kind of un unsung or like un uh, dealt with implication of, of some of the things that Grima in particular says to uh, Gandalf uh, later. But he like names him Stormcrow and he says he's a bearer of ill news and and essentially says like every time you show up everything is fucking bad. Um, but he's not the first. Grima is not the first man of Rohan to say that to Gandalf. He actually gets it said to him a couple different times by like various gate guards on their way in. Um. And so the movies take that to mean like, oh, well, Grima's just a dick uh, and uh, like Grima doesn't necessarily represent anything but Grima and Saruman. Um, but in the book, it's definitely more clear that this is like a sort of more pervasive widespread view of of Gandalf. Um, and I And I think it doesn't get that play that like there has to be some level of legitimacy to this belief that uh, Gandalf is a bit of a shit stir because it's clear that the people of Rohan don't like Grima and are not sort of want or like apt to take his view on things. It's pretty much only Theoden that, that really sort of brings him into the fold like that. Everybody else is like, who the fuck is this guy? And um, so that their opinions align on Gandalf, um, is actually kind of interesting. And, and that doesn't really get any play. Uh, there's not obviously in these films much of like an internal, sort of politic to to any of these kingdoms but i do think that's one of the these things that's really interesting that like you get to rohan and suddenly for the first time there's a lot more chat about Gandalf being a bit of a fixer yeah no that's great i just watched michael clayton by the way it's a good movie about a fixer, nice, yeah. george clooney <laughs> all right we'll move on to theoden's bewitchment his initial appearances are as an old, faded man, a ghost of a king, a perhaps more literal uh, or more magical interpretation of the source text. In its way, it's supposed to reflect where Rohan is in the film at this time, faded and subservient to Saruman. This is further shown by his barely audible reaction to his son being hurt and orcs running wild across the plains. Yep. So here I have to be the joyless book nerd uh, and point out that this isn't really true in the same way in the books. Um, and this is actually kind of the chief divergence between book Rohan and movie Rohan. Um, in the book, uh, there is sort of some chat about uh, Theoden potentially having been sort of uh, like uh, made 
pliant by uh, some sort of magical or non-magical machinations of, of Saruman. Uh, he may have been cursed. He may have been poisoned. Um, but the the sort of key thing that everybody says that went wrong with Theoden is that his pride got in the way. And Grima was just a smooth talker who was able to basically talk uh, Theoden into submission by talking about his pride, by by playing on all of his fears. Um, and so the thing that gets uh, Theoden in the end is not some sort of magical outside force. It's his own, uh, sorry to put it bluntly, but like his own dog shit personality. Um, and so the fact that like Rohan is failing as a kingdom and that his kingship specifically is failing is not some sort of magical thing that that is uh, not really his fault. It is absolutely his fault. And he is the sort of exemplar of a bad king uh, that Aragorn has to see before he sort of establishes himself as as a better king. But Tolkien also uses to sort of and this we'll talk about later, like uses to, to kind of enumerate some of his own um, insecurities about uh, the monarchy. Or monarchies generally, um, in the, in the films, <laughs> in the movies, Theoden has like literally no guilt to bear. Like he doesn't have to apologize to anyone. He doesn't have to feel bad about anything because he was literally possessed uh, by a wizard who is uh, more powerful than pretty much everybody on Earth, bar Gandalf and Sauron. Uh, and so the things that go wrong under Theoden aren't really his fault. He was mostly just kind of picked out for being a king, and he's he's basically 100% a victim. Um, and that is a really important divergence between the book and the film here, and is like definitely, I think, a, a source of like why Rohan gets to be in the, the movies like such an uncritical, unconditional good, whereas I think in the books, it's a far more sort of nuanced, uncomfortable thing. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. I assume some of that's for economy. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing I was thinking about was also like, in a way that the film depicts it, it heightens Saruman um, a little bit. And it's like, we've talked about magic in the legendarium and like how what the elves do isn't quite magic. But I feel like in the wizard space with Gandalf and Saruman, they can be a little more liberal with how they define and do magic. And I kind of read it as this is a spot where they could like kind of beef up Saruman, who's ostensibly the big bad of this film. Um, but... You know, that's just kind of like me rationalizing as opposed to it being a solid thesis because I'm still chafed over how he's just not in Return of the King at all or like <laughs> all that stuff at the end with Isengard. So like if they were kind of building up to some of that stuff, um, I'd feel a little better about it. But I think your point is well taken. This is kind of a ground zero for the divergence because I think Theoden is one of the more complex characters in the films relative to other film characters. But a lot of it just feels like the massive burden of ruling as opposed to a series of his own fuck-ups being the source of whatever that angst is. Yeah. And I mean, this is like, you know, we'll definitely get into this more later, but there's like, Tolkien kind of sets out um, in his own sort of scatterbrained way, uh, like a really interesting theory of power and like the duties and responsibilities inherent to uh, to that power. Um, and, and one of those sort of important elements of that is um, who you take your counsel from. Um, because you as a ruler are expected to be wise, but you aren't expected to have the answers to everything all the time. You also need to pick and choose carefully who you take your advice from. Um, and uh, that sort of theme is not played out in the same way in the films. Um, it, it gets some light at some points, but is a far less significant thing. Whereas in the the books, this question of who 
uh, Theoden takes his orders from or takes his advice from is a really central one. So we're going to uh, slide on over to Grima Wormtongue, and I'm going to introduce the segment by reading a tweet from Ayn Randy, who just based on that name, you might think that's uh, some libertarian fuckwad, but because we all give ourselves very ironic names on Twitter, please note that Ayn Randy is not uh, a libertarian fucko. But anyway, here is the tweet. I'm excited to introduce my new personal advisor and confidant, a huge fucking weirdo named Wormtongue. Plus, he looks like complete shit. Please trust him with any secrets of the kingdom you might have. <laughs> so yeah, Grima Wormtongue. What a fucking name. You got anything on that, Emily? Yeah, so here, worm means snake, uh, not like a, an earthworm. Um, and Grima derives from the old English word for mask or helmet. Um, um, you know, you know, there's you can read into that. But the reason I bring it up is because it's interesting to contrast with Eowyn's chosen name of Durnhelm, which is the name she uses when she rides from Dunharrow to to Gondor. Um, and Durnhelm means hidden or masked protector. So you compare that sort of mask to the the helmet of Grima, uh, and I think you got some uh, interesting symbolism there. No, that's great because from my, you know, baby brain, Grima is just grim because uh, <laughs> yeah. that's how it's spelled. So, yeah, he is a pretty grim dude or he introduced grimness into the story. So that works. Uh, the worm tongue thing, I should have known that because I'm so familiar with W-Y-R-M, the spelling yeah. of worm that's usually associated with snakes. Um, I don't know how I flagged that, but now I'm just thinking about parcel tongue um, yep. and uh, all that stuff. So there's definitely some... Harry Potter overlap that we might mention shortly. But anyway, Grima doesn't have much of a backstory. Little is known of his youth or what he was doing prior to his work for Saruman and then Theoden vis-a-vis Saruman. He is a Rohan native, though possibly descended from a Dunlander. Yeah, and so there's some, again, as with a lot of things that, that go on in, in this story, there's some really interesting potential racial politics involved here. Um I, I think in one of the previous episodes talked about uh, how uh, when the Rohirrim were given the land of Kaelin Arthon by, uh, by the Sturd Kyrian, um, it was depopulated by the Gondorim, but it wasn't entirely depopulated because a tribe of, well, multiple tribes of the, these people called the Dunlendings, the Hillmen, had moved in and sort of claimed the land um, and were rightly or wrongly fucked off at the Rohirrim for coming in and being like, this is our land now. Um, and this sort of invocation of uh Grima's potentially Dunlanding uh Dunlandish appearance um implies a lot um about how Rohan is structured um not just because we know already that Tolkien has this really odd moral hierarchy racially based moral hierarchy um but because it implies that there is a level of sort of strange um integration racial integration between the Dunlendings and the Rohirrim. Um, and, you know, there, there's a potential to ask questions about like what the like sexual politics involved with like him potentially being uh, a Dunlender is and like, how, how did that come about? Um, but there's a lot there that, that, that I find really fascinating. And it, it all comes down to this one basically throwaway detail in, in the description of, of Grima. Um, and, you know, I don't want to have a huge conversation about like the potential apartheid state that is Rohan, uh, but I do want to sort of highlight this as like the amount of depth uh, in, in these descriptions is really just uh, like a, a fucking marvel. 
And based on shots in the scene, it looks like uh, Grimo was promised Aowen, whether, you know, well, definitely probably by force, uh, for his service to Saruman and in helping him ensnare the kingdom of Rohan. Yep. And so this is going to be one of the few times when I bitch about both uh, Rohirrim of the books and Rohirrim of the movies, because this is a huge thing to drop. Uh, this fact that like she was potentially being uh, auctioned off as a sort of spoil of war. Um, and nobody brings this up at any point. Like, yeah, uh, Aomer in the movies kind of talks about it, but then doesn't really do anything to protect her afterwards. They let fucking Grima walk away. Uh, Aragorn just lets him walk away and doesn't say anything about it. And it's one of these incredible moments where in both the book and the movies, the good guys uh, just totally fucking forget about like the ongoing violence the women's in their li- the women in their lives face, um, and yet are still treated by both the books and the movies as effectively uh, good guys with sort of no moral grayness to it. But Eowyn was facing down a, a, a fucking horrific life. Uh, if anything in Aragorn or Gandalf's plan went even slightly wrong, uh, and nobody stops to consider the implications of that or what that says about all of our lads who just sat by and let that happen. Oh yeah, I've never heard of men in power being completely oblivious to the pain <laughs> suffered by <laughs> others, especially women. Brand new, brand new to me. <laughs> Uh, before we go too much further with Grima, we do got to shout out the actor behind that creepy facade, who is not a creepy person, Brad Dorif, uh, one of the true great character actors of our time. I do want to specifically highlight his role in Deadwood um, as Doc Corcoran or Doc Cochran. Sorry. Um, it's one of the fundamentally best characters I've seen in the quote unquote prestige TV era of entertainment. Um, he's one of the more moral rocks of that show. And he this was airing pretty much at the same time or just a couple of years after The Lord of the Rings. And it's kind of wild because I would have never have recognized that it's the same actor without the, <laughs> actually knowing the credits. Um, just some other mentions real quick. He was in Dune, the David Lynch one, not the recent one from Denis Villeneuve. Uh, he was in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the adaptation from 1975 or so, as well as Mississippi Burning. And I think you got one to mention too, Emily. Yeah, the best ever episode of The X-Files, which is the first Scully soundtrack episode of The X-Files in season one, Beyond the Sea. Um, and it's so funny that you mentioned not ha- being able to recognize him in Deadwood because um, until recently, it, it like I was watching Beyond the Sea recently and I was like, I recognize that guy. And he looks exactly like Grima in Beyond the Sea. Like, like he has that long, greasy hair and poor guy does not have... Uh, very good eyebrows. Uh, so the eyebrows are basically gone anyways. And even despite that similarity, I still didn't clock him because he's just got these great mannerisms. Um, but yeah, beyond the sea, 10 out of 10, one of the best episodes of the X-Files ever. And Brad Dorif just fucking makes that. So the unfinished tales tell us Grimo was seized by the Nazgul and Rohan during their initial search for the Shire. And he was able to broadly point them in its direction in the Northwest. Anything you want to say on that before I move on? Just um, Yeah, so uh, this is one of these things where The Unfinished Tales has a lot of sort of depth added to some of the characters. Uh, these two chapters, the one where Grima's kidnapping is included and then the Battle of the Fords of Eisen, which describes Theodred's De- De- death, um, are really, really fascinating. Um, lots of the adaptations will pull bits and pieces from them. Um, so 
this adaptation, or at least the extended edition, pulls the Battle of the Fords of Aizen, which is where we see Theodrin lying face down in the water from the Unfinished Tales. And the only adaptation I've actually seen take this Grima being kidnapped by the Nazgul bit um, is the BBC 1981 radio play uh, with Ian Holm as Frodo. Um, and I do think it's kind of interesting because I like that little story about uh, Grima being the one to basically point uh, the Nazgul in the right direction. But lots of places are kind of, lots of like um, adaptations are, are a little scared of doing it. And I can sort of get why, but I do think it's one of these really uh cool and and interesting little tidbits that is fun i mean it also shows the similarities uh starts to build out the similarities between uh rohan and and the shire uh which is something we'll come back to <laughs> a lot yeah, throughout this i think i'm in your camp when i found out this little tidbit i'm like okay th- this absolutely tracks to me it makes sense i think i think it serves story and character in a pretty solid way so i i kind of like that bit um and since you mentioned the theodrid thing i'm going to mention this here um, there was supposed to be a scene in the extended edition where Saruman blamed Grima for the killing of Theodrid, um, replacing, but the line was eventually cut out, but that line did make it into the Lord of the Rings Game Boy Advance version of the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, after the player defeats Saruman in the Tower of Orthanc. So that little bit is also somewhere worked into the grand tapestry that is the adaptation of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Um, and one thing I want to mention is it's not hard for me to separate, but worm tongue and worm tail both mm-hmm. arrived in my life at the same time. And you mentioned, uh, the very snapish look to Grima, uh, in these films. And it's like, yeah, it's like, it's a guy who looks like Snape, but functionally acts like, uh, Peter Pettigrew or worm tail to me, um, because these two things were just happening and I only had an 18 year old's brain. So I had to compare <laughs> the two, but, um, Kind of, kind, of, kind of just see the overlap there. So when Aomer confronts the barely present king with news of Saruman's orcs, Grima pops out of nowhere as if he was sulking and hiding behind the throne to say Aomer is full of shit. Saruman's our pal. These are friendly orcs planting gardens and giving the kids piggyback rides. Grima accuses Aomer of being a malcontent and warmonger, and that earn, earns him Aomer's hand around his neck. This is when Aomer asks what the cost of Grima's treason was, with Grima shooting a look over at Eowyn, exiting stage left at the time. And Grima's doing very important incel representation work here, which I don't want to miss. <laughs> Jokes aside, Dorif's face in the shot specifically is very memorable image to me. His green, green face and greenish-looking eyes, probably blue, taking up 80% of the screen space, framed by his black hair and furs and the shadows of the darkened hall. In this moment, you can see a hint of sadness and longing in Grima's eyes, uh, which Emily pretty much flagged in the recap as well. He's supposed to be (laughs) villain-coded, but it does appear that there is some decency or humanity deep down within. Yeah, and so this is actually a a thing that I'm quite excited about. Um, I don't want to... Okay, well, so one of the things that really comes out in these films is that like Peter Jackson is definitely a sort of horror director. Um, and so he has a tendency uh, to film and and sort of direct the actors in a way that leads to or could potentially have led to some very one-dimensional villains. Um, I think you see this most clearly with, uh, and of course I'm going to say this, uh, with Denethor. Um, and and the sort of nuance and and uh, you know relatable discomfort that that you get in the books with Denethor is, is sort of washed away in favor of a, a like a very well done but but ultimately kind of cartoonish villain. 
Um, and Grima, who is far more cartoonish in the books and certainly could have gone that same way, I think, I don't want to say rescued because that implies that it would have been awful uh, if he hadn't, but I think Brad Dorif manages to bring a level of of sort of um, uh, uh, humanity, I guess, back into this character of Grima, which is important because the entire Rohan plot is ultimately about the fallibility of mankind in a way the Gondor plot, which is about this existential threat, this spiritual threat, isn't. Um, and, you know, that that sort of differentiation in, in the ultimate conflicts between Rohan uh, and, and Saruman and, and Gondor and Sauron isn't played up in the same way in uh, the movies. But I think Brad Dorif kind of Go, working overtime, really working as hard as he does to add that level of sort of quiet sadness. Um, and, you know, the, this sort of feeling that like we could all theoretically end up in a Grima position. Um, we are all kind of feeling that human solidarity in that moment um, is really brilliant. And I think that definitely gets sort of to the, the heart um, in a lot of ways of, of what uh, Tolkien was trying to write when he when he wrote Rohan. Eomer's assault ends up being his political undoing for now, as Grima's hired goons, hired goons, sees Eomer. <laughs> Grima thus banishes Eomer from Rohan and the king's good graces, moving him off the table, well, after next week's scenes, so that he can reappear for the big finish at Helm's Deep. For the level of depth the story was going for in this plot thread, Theoden will become the central figure, which I can't really blame anyone for. Bernard Hill rules as Theoden, and his performance in these last two films are truly fantastic. But, because there's only finite screen time, Eomer is one of the people who sees a significantly lessened role, to the point that Theoden gets some of Eomer's iconic lines from the books, such as drawing swords in Helm's Deep. Eomer in the books is imprisoned, not banished, and would be present for much of the later events at Helm's Deep. Yeah, and the fact of his imprisonment rather than banishment is actually really important to the sort of moral arc of the story. Um, so, uh, like, Eomer and Theoden are sort of made so, like, servile to their self-made circumstances that literally after Theodra dies, the new heir to the throw of Rohan is wasting away in a jail cell in the bottom, in the basement of rohan's most important political site um and you know i'm gonna continue to go quite hard on like book aomer and theod and being just absolute moronic cunts the whole way through this but i think it's like really really important to to kind of redress this like bad popular fan and balance that says that like the rohirrim were totally fine and did nothing wrong and were totally victims like no no they screwed up time and time and time again and a lot of what they're facing down is like uh you know the natural consequences of dumb decisions <laughs> Yeah, I can see that the way that they economize the Urken brand and everything with Helm's Deep, that they Eomer's banishment is serving the ending more than it's something that they organically chose because of everything that's going on with Rohan politics. Uh, or at least that's kind of how I read it. Yeah. The extended edition scene here includes a written declaration of Eomer's exile, which I agree can be useful context, but sticking to my anti-extended edition propaganda... <laughs> I just trusted Grima to have that power as Theoden's conciliary at the time, or perhaps Hand of the King. Uh, oh, boo. You're the one who fucking dropped the game. <laughs> no, I didn't. I opened this the store. <laughs> 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 All right, we'll pivot over to our film crap portion, and we'll talk a little bit about Theoden and Grima's makeup or look. All of Theoden's look is done with makeup, even his transition later in this film. 
This was long before the days of de-aging kids, though of course Theoden is supposed to look beleaguered and poisoned in a way that extends beyond just old age. Yeah, and this is this is one of my favorite bits of makeup work in probably any film ever. Uh, it's just so masterfully done. Um, and, um, you know, as sort of my careful propagandizing for like the return of practical effects, um, I don't think I've seen any sort of aging um, in, in either direction, the aging or aging, uh, work as well as this. Um, and it's because that there's that sort of tangibility and the like, actual texture of his skin is visible um in a way that isn't necessarily when you've got like what is it de niro and the irishman being de-aged into like a fucking polar express kid um so yeah this is i i just think this is awesome it looks so good and it, it really is such a, a like a marvelous moment in the film because of how well executed it is it does have that magic we love the artifice of cinema <laughs> So quick Song of Ice and Fire corner here. This rendering of Theoden was often used as a stand-in for the Mad King Eris in various fan films or as a basis for fan art. Eris had already been physically described by George prior to this film, but when I first read about the Mad King and heard about his long faded hair and fingernails, I immediately pictured Theoden in my mind. Um, who we've never actually seen the Mad King in the Game of Thrones show, minus a couple flashes and silhouettes, though he was filmed for an abandoned pilot. Grima, too, has a very distinctive look in this film. He's got a green pallor to his face, with hair slicked back, giving him a slimy feeling, and no eyebrows at the behest of Jackson. The goal was for Grima to be unsettling to look at the whole time. Uh, the eyebrow thing I kind of flagged when Emily mentioned earlier that Dorif doesn't have great eyebrows, uh, <laughs> just because that's funny to me, because the way I remember his major film roles to me are Grima, where he has no eyebrows, or his role in David Lynch's Dune, where he has these comically giant eyebrows <laughs> as Peter DeVries, and even his Doc Corcoran character in Deadwood is giving these big, bushy eyebrows. So <laughs> apparently that's a thing that is known, and it is very important that you do something with Dorif's <laughs> real eyebrows <laughs> to make it work for the story. There's also a part of me that finds overlap between Grima and Gollum, two characters who play a big part in this film and represent danger in the presence of our quote-unquote heroes. They both have an ill-favored look about them and exist in a more morally gray space than most of our characters in these movies. Yeah, I, that's it's a really good point. It's a, it's a really sort of brilliant parallel that I, I don't think I would have ever thought of uh, myself. Um, but now that you've pointed out, um, as as I love to do, um, it's actually made me mad. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I think like one of my, my, my sort of um, like bugbears with the Rohan plot is that it is at its fundamentals about people making bad choices and and sort of reaping what they sow um and i think trying to make grima look not fully human irks me in a way um and i think it irks me because it implies that like the things the bad things that grima is doing are somehow not human and and not a totally sort of normal part of like the human political toolbox, the 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 man political toolbox, um, and I think it also sort of helps to drive that that wedge, that aesthetic and and sort of emotional wedge between Theoden, who is complicit, and Grima, who is driving this by saying, "Oh, well, you know, Theoden's a man, and Theoden gets this makeover into this sort of young-looking king again," uh, and 
uh, Grima, Grima doesn't, Grima always sort of looks Gollum-like. You're, you're totally right, it is Gollum-like um, and not fully human. Um, and so the things that Grima does come from an evil that is not fully human. Um, but I actually don't think that's true. Like, I think all of the things that go wrong in, in Rohan are things that are uh, recognizably human. It's the, the, you know, the, the what is it, Macbeth, like the pride goeth before the fall, the folly of pride. Mm -hmm. um, you have, uh, you know, you know guardians like Theoden, parents' guardians like Theoden not paying attention to their kids because there is something sort of uncomfortable about realizing that you're potentially fucking up the future. Uh, there's the sort of narcissism element. There, there, everything that goes wrong in Rohan goes wrong in Rohan for very human reasons. Um, and even Grima and his sort of social climbing and, and political maneuvering is something that is very, very human. Um, and so now I'm feeling a bit like, oh man, I wish they hadn't tried to make him look so distinct, like some sort of creature, um, and had instead tried to make him look far, far more conscientiously like the Rohirrim, except in the ways that he is stuck out from them by his like Dunlending appearance. So, you know, dress him in the greens and the reds and the sort of rich colors um, of the Rohirrim, but make sure he's got that black hair that sticks out against the the sort of blonde hair slash wigs of all the Rohirrim. Make it clear that he is very much a part and sort of represents the like id of this culture. Um, don't try and set him apart from it. Yeah, no, I think that's valid. Uh, and just to start getting you mad and to get you all riled <laughs> up for your uh, costuming rant we're going to hear here, I do want to read a quote from uh, Nagila Dixon, who was the costume designer, um, I think for all the films, but this is specifically about Grima. I wanted Grima to have a look of a hunched feral creature who was clothed in finery, but who never washed. His linen shirt was greasy, dirty, and utterly repulsive. I'm happy to say it was a near-perfect example of costume breakdown. The sleeves of his underrobe came to points on the hands, heightening the sense of evil intent, while the overrobe, black velvet flecked with gold, had a fishtail extension that dragged along the floor behind him. With the addition of a high, ruched velvet collar, his neck seemed to disappear into his shoulders, creating the illusion of a humpback deformity, which I guess I'm just flagging that there's supposed to be a fair amount of Quasimodo in here. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, the 90s man, uh, disability is evil. <laughs> Love it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting to hear. I'm, I'm glad that you've got this quote here, actually, because you're right. It does tee me up perfectly for everything I'm about to bitch about, because it shows that there's a lot of thought that's going into the details, uh, a lot of thought that's going into the details, uh, which means that, you know, everybody working on the costume team was stopping to think about every single piece that went on the actors. That's important. Um, it's not just important because it's a sign of like a good production, a good caring production, but it also means that the things that I'm about to complain about are justified because people weren't putting this thought in. Um, but yeah, I don't like that whole uh, hunchback stuff, uh, as like a sign of evil. Um, that's a little nauseating. I guess you could just do this stuff. Uh, I, I was gonna say you could just do this stuff in the 1990s, but you can do this stuff now. Who am I kidding? Um, hasn't gotten better. Um, yeah. So the costuming, the costuming Lord, um, Aowen's costuming. Um, we see it sort of briefly here. This is actually one of the dresses I like more of the the sort of ones in her rotation. But uh, I feel like her costuming is the most perfect evidence of anything um, in these films that the people involved didn't really understand her character. Um the only time I think they really get anything remotely close to to right 
with her costuming is during Theodred's funeral scene, um, the bulk of which is only in the extended edition. Um, and that's when she's got that really brilliant high neck uh, gown on um, and it's in the dark colors and it, it sort of feels distant and imposing. So, so here, here's my kind of breakdown of the my main issues with it. So once again, they're using this like generic woman character silhouette. Um, I complained about this with Gladriel. I'm pretty sure I also complained about this with Arwen. Uh, there are no other women characters uh, in this series, so don't <laughs> worry. I won't complain about it again. Um, but, you know, they've got her in this like 15th century inspired Italian-esque costume, um, which like in silhouette and general aesthetics doesn't look particularly different from Galadriel's costumes or even Arwen's. And um, really the only difference between them um, is the, the the fabric. Um, like Galadriel's got the the sort of uh, lacier uh, gown and Arwen's got the sort of gauzier, uh, thinner ones. Um, Eowyn's is the sort of thicker muslin and wool. Uh, and that's really it. Um, I think that's really bad. Um, I think that's like a, quite a lazy decision and, and not impactful in the way it should be impactful. Um, and generally, I think it's a shame because 8th century Anglo-Saxon attire and 8th century being when Beowulf was uh, first recorded, um, the, the sort of gowns of that, well, you know, a century is a long time, but but typically the gowns of, of uh, that we would tag as 8th century Anglo-Saxon um, were really, really visually interesting. Um, and they weren't too different from later medieval gowns. They were different, but not too different. So I don't think it would be the sort of thing where you'd put it on a character in a in a big budget mainstream fantasy film like this and the audience would go, whoa, what the fuck is that? Um, it's definitely close enough uh, that it's recognizable, um, but it's also distinct enough that it ha- adds a level of sort of visual interest and cultural distinction between the the various elves and then the, the men who, uh, as far as I'm aware, would not be swapping uh, trade secrets in terms of fashion. Um, the kind of crucial elements to me about the the sort of uh, Anglo-Saxon gowns um, are the the sort of rich materials, the layering, um, and the the layering using a lot of really visually interesting um, accessories that is more than just the sort of simple uh, Guinevere girdle you see around Eowyn's waist in most of the costumes she's wearing. There were a lot of buttons, there were a lot of necklaces holding things up, a wide variety of belts, uh, crowns, uh, circlets holding veils into hair, lots of pins, lots of earrings holding things up. It, it's It was a really sort of uh, semi-utilitarian, but like um, also kind of flamboyantly and decadently utilitarian kind of style um, and and would have been a really interesting way to, to sort of build out a differentiation and like costume and culture between the Rohirrim and the elves uh, and they chose not to um and I'm also mad about the silhouette because um it it means they're not thinking about clothing silhouette at least for the women as a, an extension of personality or a way to do more character development um or if I'm being generous in saying that they were um then they're making entirely the wrong declarations about Eowyn's personality um the high neck gown she wears at Theodred's funeral is like the perfect silhouette for her. Um, and I think really if they had to go with this sort of Italian inspired uh, medieval look, um, then every single gown she wore should have been a variation on that high necked gown. And um, it should, the costuming generally should have been there to highlight her class status and her personality as described in the books, which is like a lily cast in steel, AKA a frigid bitch. Um, I want like, high necks for her, strong lines for every layer of her surcoat, gown and undergown. I want lots of clean, sharp lines. I want everything pressed to within an inch of its life. I want it to be clear that she is functionally untouchable and is also 
rich um, and they don't get that. Um, and then they've got this kind of weak ass color palette for her. Um, and um, I think this is kind of annoying for a variety of reasons. Obviously, they're using the sort of greens and jewel tones that the rest of the Rohirrim get. And like, yes, that's certainly a choice um, and, you know, even a justifiable choice. I will give them that. But I think it's the wrong choice. Um, I think they should have used the color palette to kind of set her apart uh, from the Rohirrim. Um, because she is very much a woman apart from the people around her. She is, um, even though she doesn't get at this point in the story, recognize it. She's someone who's deeply alienated from her culture and sort of blocked out and not allowed to take part um, in what she feels is her birthright, her cultural and ideological birthright. Um, and I, I think there's kind of like uh, a frustration for me because she is described in terms of a lot of colors in the books. She gets the whites, the dark blues, the rich verdant greens. Um, so that toolbox was there for them to use. They just elected to not use it. Um, and I kind of feel like, okay, so you use the, the silhouette of her costuming to differentiate her from the other women characters and the other cultures, and then you use the color palette to differentiate her from the other Rohirrim, and then you've got a really interesting costume bank for her there instead of what we got there. Um, and then my last thing is just kind of a little annoying mini bitch here, but um, she she's dressed like she's poor, <laughs> and, and like she's dressed like all the other women in Rohan. Uh, and admittedly, we don't see many of them, but she's dressed like a fucking extra. Um, and she's an aristocrat. Um, and more than just being an aristocrat, the one thing she says she is not in the books is a serving woman. She literally says, I am not a serving woman. I am of the house of Aeryl. That is her whole thing. That is why she's mad is because she's being treated like a serving woman. Uh, and now I'm mad on her behalf because the costuming is treating her like a serving woman instead of a rich hoity-toity bitch. Um, and I think they should have let her have that awful uh, stock up, uh, poor little rich girl energy that she deserved in her costuming. Uh, and it, it gets my goat that they didn't. No, that's great. I, I have no issue or complaints with any of that. That's, that's beautiful. I hope that rant was fulfilling for you too. Yeah. I feel, I feel like a good bit of catharsis there. <laughs> So for our token token book section, there isn't an exact analog to uh, a chapter in The Two Towers that was referenced here. As we discussed earlier, a lot of this is stuff that was setting up these characters before they appeared in the story proper when they encounter Aragorn, Gandalf, and the rest. But Emily has found a lot of other juicy stuff and possibly a history of Britain for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I couldn't couldn't do anything by halves, apparently. Um so as I kind of started setting up Beowulf and the question of Beowulf and mythology in some of the previous episodes, I now want to kind of answer a, a, a strangely important question, um, which is, uh, what the fuck is England? Um, and to get to there and why that question is important, um, I want to read a bit from uh, letter 131 of J.R.R. Tolkien's published letters. Um, 131, I think I've actually cited like repeatedly on this podcast before. Um, it is well worth a read. Um, 
almost everything that I talk about ad nauseum on this podcast is mentioned by Tolkien in that letter. It's one of the longer published letters that we have, and it really sets out his sort of mindset uh, in creating the legendarium and sort of his political thoughts on um, all of, a lot of the major players uh, in both of Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings. Um, it's really fascinating. There's so much in there, uh, definite, and it's only like three or four pages long, so, so really uh, a quick kind of read if you want some fascinating and valuable insight and into the professor's mind anyways so so there's this passage and here that i'm going to read to you real quick and then we'll get into the boring history lesson (laughs) of course there was and is all the arthurian world but powerful as it is it is imperfectly naturalized associated with the soil of britain but not with the english and does not replace what i felt to be missing for one thing Its fairy is too lavish and fantastical, incoherent and repetitive. For another and more important thing, it is involved in and explicitly contains the Christian religion. And so that's J.R.R. Tolkien on why he wanted to create an English mythos and not a British one. Now, um, I assume most of our listeners are American uh, and are rightly going to be asking the question, what the fuck is the difference between Britain and England? Um, and and the short answer is not anything that materially matters. Uh, the long answer is uh, about a thousand years of development. Um, so I'm now begrudgingly going to get into that. Um, I should also preface this by saying that this is something that I have spent a lot of my life, my time uh, studying. Uh, I did a couple degrees in pretty much exactly this uh, in, in various shades. Uh, so uh, I'm trying to to do this in the least ridiculous way possible. Um, but if at any point um, when you guys are listening to this, you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Just ping me on Twitter and I promise you I will do my best to try and explain it in a less deranged way. That said, on to Britain and England, everybody's favorite topics. So uh, Britain and England are two separate things uh, in the, the, the sort of first instance on the basis of geography. Um, Britain is shorthand for Great Britain, um, which refers to the island. Uh, that is that weird little kind of mannequin-shaped thing in the middle of the North Sea, uh, from John O'Groats to uh, well to Dover and Kent uh, and to Bournemouth in the south. Uh, that island that encompasses uh, the countries of Wales, England, uh, and Scotland, uh, parts of Scotland, not including the islands. Uh, that is that is Britain. Um, England, however, is, uh, as much as it is part of the sort of geographical south center of the island of Great Britain, um, it's also a state and nation in a way that Great Britain isn't. Which gets us on to the political question. So um, Britain, as I said, encompasses Wales, England, Scotland, um, and the United Kingdom, which is a third separate entity, um, more uh, correctly known as the uh, United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Um these are these are two separate things. England was its own state uh, for a bit. Um, so Wales was annexed by England in 1543, um, and in the uh, 17th century, uh, Scotland's king uh, became England's king. Uh, that is James VI of Scotland, James I of England. Uh, he uh, inherited the throne of England and uh, fucked off down from Edinburgh to London and famously never came back. Um, about 100, well, literally 100 years later, uh, Scotland uh, voted to join uh, a union with England and Wales, uh, and that was uh, put into law by the 
uh, Act of Union of 1707. Um, about 93 years later, um, Ireland was forcibly integrated into the Union and the Acts of 1800 and 1801, uh, but this was not the start of uh, Ireland's relationship, so to speak, with uh, England and, and Britain. Uh, it had, of course, been uh, uh, the victim of hundreds of years of colonial domination uh, by the Brits uh, and the English. Uh, and the Scots, I should say. Um, and it's also important to note uh, that it is the British Empire, not the English Empire. Uh, I will say this because I uh, live in Scotland right now, and, and though I am pro-independence, quite often have to deal with people who are pro-independence who say things like, well, it wasn't our empire. Uh, no, no. Uh, Scottish people, uh, uh, especially Scottish civil servants and Scottish aristocrats, uh, formed the backbone of the British Empire um, and were pretty much the single most important uh, uh, driving force behind the establishment um, and proliferation of the British Empire. It is definitely not uh, an English endeavour. Um, and uh, as with so many things uh, like capitalism, which was, of course, a, a really important uh, driver of the, 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 the sort of engine of uh, the empire <laughs> was first described and or established uh, here in, in Scotland and uh, Edinburgh, some will say, uh, Glasgow, others will say. Uh, so it is important to note that that is not an English empire, it's British empire, and it has a sort of fully fledged uh, multi-nation approach to its establishment and later uh, global domination. Um, and then there's... Uh, my favorite thing to talk about, and this is where I have to be careful because I will get myself arrested for sectarianism <laughs> laws in, in, in <laughs> Scotland. Uh, there's a religious difference uh, between Britain and England uh, and then the, the other constituent nations of Britain. Um, so I mentioned that Wales was uh, uh, integrated, annexed uh, in 1543. That is under the Henrys. Uh, and uh, you probably, fairly enough, uh, don't know most of the Henrys unless you know Henry V, probably. Uh, I know they did an adaptation with uh, Timmy C recently, um, and that was meant to be decent. Uh, Henry VIII, of course, is the the sort of uh, mastermind uh, behind the Protestant Reformation in England. He is also someone who is intimately connected with the the, the annexation of Wales and the sort of uh, act of bringing Wales into the fold of Britain. Um, and there is an element of uh, sort of Protestant aesthetics or or sort of uh, symbolism behind Britishness as an entity. Um, Scotland has its own sort of fraught history with Catholicism and Protestantism, but it is worth noting that uh, Mary Queen of Scots, who was the last Catholic uh, monarch of uh, of Scotland, uh, fought very very hard against uh, a man named John Knox, who was a Protestant reformer, um, and the the fight to sort of establish. Uh, uh, Protestantism during the Reformation and Scotland was like a really, really significant one and had uh, long-lasting uh, political effects on uh, the Scottish nation, uh, the English nation, um, and then the latter-day creation of uh, Britain and Britishness. Um, all this to say, um, England, and this is England here, not Britain, England was a Catholic country until suddenly it wasn't. Um, and I think that's probably the best way to summarize uh, a thousand years of uh, English religious history there. Um, so Englishness is really interesting because Englishness as a, as a tool and as a term has an ability to encompass Catholicism in a way that 
Britishness doesn't. Um, and this is true for a lot of reasons. So uh, Britishness as a sort of uh, multinational identity uh, was largely developed in the 18th century um, in opposition to uh, France. Uh, so France was positioned in the sort of pseudo burgeoning popular presses as like this deviant Catholic nation across the sea. Um, and uh, Britain, uh, not England, uh, was positioned as the sort of hardier and more morally upright Protestant one. Um, but then there's also some like important denominational differences. Uh, so the dominant Protestant church in uh, England is the Anglican church, uh, which we call high church, um, essentially meaning that it kept a lot of the sort of dress and routine and mannerisms of Catholicism. So you get like the big cathedrals, you get the sort of uh, bright colors, lavishness of of old world Catholicism. Uh, Scotland, uh, you know, the old stereotype of dour face Scots uh, has low church Protestantism. So we had a thing called iconoclasm where they like burned the churches and got rid of all the, the, the sacred ca uh, Catholic art. Uh, and so now all of our churches are square with whitewashed walls <laughs> and nobody smiles ever and uh, doesn't drink. Um, and so there is that also cultural religious difference there. Um, so <laughs> all of this is, this leads to some really interesting sort of cultural divergences. Um, Celtic, um, as Tolkien talks about in letter 131, is actually a British thing. Um, and it's a British thing because it encompasses parts of England, for example, Cornwall, um, Wales, uh, Scotland, and Ireland. Um, what it is not is English. Um, it has parts of England in it, but it is a, it is a, a sort of cultural uh, and political trend uh, or trajectory or theme that encompasses all the nations of uh, the uh, uh, United Kingdom, um, bar for the most part, England. Um, it has parts of England, but not all of it. Um, and so when Tolkien talks about Arthuriana as a British thing, he, he is effectively right. Um, and he's, he's effectively right because in a lot of ways, England is more Norman now than Celtic, which is to say in 1066, when, uh, William the Conqueror, Guillaume le Conqueron in French, uh, invaded from, uh, from, from Brittany, um, the, the 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 English state, the, the edifices of the English state were largely taken over by uh, the Norman conquerors. And so it became a, a very French thing. Uh, don't say that to English people. They'll get furious. Uh, they have a weird thing about the French, presumably, because <laughs> the French have better state than them. Fuck knows. Um, but so we get into the sort of uh, 18th century add uh, the the sort of genesis of the modern nation state. Um, if you'd like to read more about this, I recommend Benedict Anderson's book, uh, Imagine Communities. Uh, it's one of these things, it's like assigned in all poli sci 101 courses, but I feel like undergrads read it and are like, yeah, whatever. Um, and then years later, they come back to it and they're like, yeah, this is really great. Uh, so if you have read it for a course already and we're like, whatever, go back to it now and have your this is really great moment. Um, but a lot of the the sort of nations of uh, the the of Western Europe in particular, uh, and I include in this the United States because it was obviously the first sort of uh, bourgeois revolution, um, developed their idea of nation in, in the sort of crucible of violent revolution, and, and so that's Haiti, um, that's the United States, that's France, uh, Denmark to to a much lesser extent, um, and then Scotland through a slightly odd uh, nonviolent uh, revolution through through the sort of uh, advent of capitalism and then the cultural renaissance. Um, and we'll blame Walter Scott for that bullshit. Uh, and we'll get back to that later. 
or hopefully never. <laughs> um, but England never had that. Uh, England had the empire instead, uh, and England had a quite calm uh, state-sponsored Protestant Reformation that that kind of hindered any sort of uh, unique national development. And Englishness was like largely sublimated to Britishness, um, and that was mostly because um, the English state and the English aristocracy realized that they could make way more fucking money um, if they played up and played nice with the Scots and were like, "Oh, we're one big family. We're all Brits together." Um, and we'll just dump the Englishness uh, and don't think about it because uh, as long as we all, um, you know, do horrible war crimes worldwide, we'll make a lot of money and it'll be fine. Uh, so English never really, England never really developed its own separate national identity, and which means in large part, it really didn't develop its own sort of unique cultural trends that are decidedly English in the way that, for example, Rob Roy or uh, Rabbi Burns as Scottish or uh, Voltaire or Rousseau are French. Um but Emily, you might say, wasn't Shakespeare English. Uh, yes, he was, uh, but he liked the Italians too much, made too many dick jokes, <laughs> and was less concerned with the establishment of a national politic than the reinforcement of a monarchical one. So Tolkien uh, was not keen on that shit. Um, and after Shakespeare, there have been a couple uh, famous English artists, writers, Whoever, you may have heard of some of them. Um, I'm sorry if you have. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but like, you know, there are folks like the Pre-Raphaelites who we've talked about on this podcast before. George Orwell, who was a cunt. Uh, and uh, then, of course, the Little Englanders and Enoch Powell. Um, I will not kick open uh, the door that is the question of Enoch Powell uh, right now, but I would highly recommend reading The Rivers of Blood speech to get a sense for what Englishness looked like uh, in the sort of middle of this century, last century. Oh my God, we're in the 2000s, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, so read Enoch Powell. Uh, that'll help you understand England to uh, an extent um, and also probably help you understand what the fuck's going on with uh, Ulster. Um, but I won't get too far into that one. So... As I mentioned, uh, Tolkien wanted to create an English mythos, uh, and the Rohirrim are intimately tied to Beowulf, which is a sort of English myth in a way. Um, the Rohirrim are not meant to be England writ large. Um, the Rohirrim are meant to sort of echo Tolkien's anxieties about England. Um, the the sort of soft-spoken Shire folk, the hobbits, are meant to be the good of England. They are meant to be Tolkien's Oxford, and they are meant to be sort of what Tolkien yearns for out of his his England, um, both before and after the war. And the Rohirrim are meant to be the sort of um, worst and best case scenario, um, in that they they kind of have these like really low lows and these really high highs. Um, it's also worth noting that in universe, uh, the Rohirrim and the uh, hobbits have some slightly interlinked history. Um, the Rohir language is like a antecedent, I guess, of the common tongue, um, which is basically a way of saying it is the old English to the common tongue's normal English, but it is mutually intelligible for the English that the Shire folk, the Hobbit speak. Uh, so, so that's a kind of connection there. Um, but then there's also sort of, as I've been hinting at uh, in the bulk of this episode today, um, there's a, a sort of enunciation of a lot of the problems that Tolkien saw in England in his lifetime uh, through the plotline of the Rohirrim. So you get like the valorization of war, which Tolkien gets really upset about, um, is directly akin to the sort of revisionism about the Great World World War One that Tolkien went through. You know, he fought in the trenches, was like, this fucking sucks, and then went home and loads of people were like, oh, our brave boys, and we love the war, and they, they did so well, and they did so 
great by England. And Tolkien was like, yeah, I saw people literally get their faces blown off in front of me. Uh, that wasn't fun. Um, then there was the, well, not then, um, well, yeah, okay then, uh, post-World War I. Uh, there's the abdication of Edward VIII. Uh, if you don't know about that, the spark notes is uh, Edward VIII shagged an American divorcee, Wallace Simpson. Uh, they were both Nazis. It's a lot. It's weird. Uh, he abdicated the throne because the English or the British monarchy cannot uh, abide by <laughs> marrying someone who was divorced. Uh, so he was told to pick either her or the British state, uh, and he picked her, and they went off and lived as little Nazi freaks in uh, Paris for the rest of their lives. Um, and that was a sort of huge gut punch to monarchists and uh, in, in Britain um, worldwide, really, but Britain especially, because uh, as a king, you are meant to choose the state and your people, the, the 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 flock that you are meant to shepherd over whoever it is that you're shagging this week. Uh, and Edward VIII did not do that. And I know it's sort of latterly been romanticized as, oh, isn't it so nice that he picked a woman instead of being a king? But like, no, that is like a, a huge <laughs> breach of the sort of like theoretical underpinnings of monarchy. You are not meant to do that shit, especially not when you're like divinely ordained to rule uh, an empire. So Edward VIII out, uh, George VI, and played by Jared Harris masterfully in The Crown, uh, well worth watching that season, even if you can't be fucked with the rest of it, because he's so good at that. Um, you know, we all know the the stuff about George VI. Uh, Colin Firth made that galling movie, uh, The King's Speech, where uh, George VI overcomes speech impediment to rule a nation, rule an empire. Um, but then there are like a lot of other little things that that uh, George VI does that I think I suspect Tolkien would have approved of, like um, electing to keep his family in London during the Blitz instead of moving them to the safety of Canada. Um, he also uh, reestablished the sort of popularity of the monarchy after the years of instability um, and is effectively to shorthand it all of the things that Theoden is not. Um and that kind of brings um, a close to to the the two kind of important uh, things here, which is one, England and Britain, very separate uh, Englishness, struggling uh, to borrow from sloppily from Gramsci. Uh, Englishness is struggling to be born, uh, whereas Britishness is sort of already born. And though it may be playing with its own afterbirth uh, in a very cringe and awful way, uh, it's definitely alive and definitely around. Um, and uh, has its own sort of cultural sphere surrounding it because of its multinational character, whereas English, with, with its semi-unborn national character, doesn't have much of a culture around it. Jared Tolkien aptly, uh, in probably one of his most significant moments of political clarity in his whole fucking life, picked up on this, decided that he wanted to create uh, essentially Arthuriana uh, for England, uh, and, you know, up to you whether or not he did or didn't succeed at that. Um, and in doing so, also wanted to use it as an opportunity to pass remarks on the sort of uh, world around him, obviously, as any writer does, but also to begin to set out uh, his theory of governance and monarchy. No, that's that's fa just fantastic. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have much to add. Also, uh, one of my cactuses got uprooted by a cat <laughs> during uh, <laughs> Emily's long spiel. So um, I'm trying to figure out some kind of clumsy metaphor I can tell you about all the dirt that's on the ground and how it relates to England <laughs> overall. But um, no, that's great. I I honestly don't have that much of the context. Um, I'm still, you know, bitter over the British rule of India for as long as it was. Yep. So I just fucking, I don't ignore them because obviously it's very important historical context, especially, you know, 
just it's history. But uh, that was great. So uh, thank you. I know you did a lot of the heavy lifting on this episode. So that's really appreciated. I'm just here to support ignoring uh, the Brits whenever that is the politically good position. (laughs) Fuck those guys. And that closes the book on this chapter of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and the other projects I've been working on. Which bomb? hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can find me at JR tweeting on Twitter, where I will be constantly singing Rule Britannia. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Jesus. And that closes the book on this chapter of My Brother, My Captain, My Bot Podcast. Oh, sorry. Let me say that. Bodcast. Huh. <laughs>